Welcome to Friendship with God. Today, Tom Cantor will teach us about man's ruin and God's remedy. This message is available for free download at friendshipwithgod.org. Now, here's some highlights from yesterday's message. So many contrasts in this chapter, chapter three. This is a chapter of contra- tremendous, just tremendous contrasts. It's a good chapter to memorize. Have you ever thought about cha- memorizing Genesis chapter three? And that's the way they're just overwhelmed. So they talked about that. They met God there in the garden. It was just wonderful. God can't reveal the cure until he reveals the disease. And that's the way it works. So they became aware of their sin. Then they became aware of their nakedness. Now here's Tom Cantor as we continue our Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday Genesis study. Why would you be afraid because you're naked? Because you know that you did something wrong and you're exposed. God, who's been their friend, God who formed them, God who was everything to them, they're now afraid of him. And, and if you asked Adam, say, how do you feel, Adam? He, Adam would say, I feel exposed. I feel ashamed. I feel guilty. I'm especially afraid. The more fearful, the more they thought about it, and he kind of, kind, of, kind of percolated in their mind of what happened, the more fearful they became. The wicked flee, Proverbs 28.1. The wickeds flee when no man pursueth. The righteous, bold as a lion. And what was the effect of all this fear? You couldn't get rest. You can't get rest when you're afraid, right? And it says, Isaiah 57, 20 says, the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest. It can't. Whose waters are cast up mire and dirt. Why can't they rest? Because Proverbs 10, 24 says, the fear of the wicked, it shall come upon him. What's the fear of the wicked? Well, There's a singular fear that haunts the back of the minds of the lost. You know what that fear is? That fear is to fall into the hands of the living God. That's what it says in in Hebrews 10.31. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, that's, that, that, what's that mean? It's a fearful thing, like you're climbing up a mountain and you lose your footing, and that moment just then when you know you lost your footing and you're falling... That's like death. You know, when you're when, when at death and you feel like you lost your footing and you, 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 you don't have a hold of that breath anymore. And just like that, you start to fall and you're losing your footing, you're slipping. And what are you afraid of? You're afraid you fall right into the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Not in a good way. That's what it means when it says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's why... There's the, the, the three wonderful words, just like we talked about. Peter had those wonderful words, God of all grace. Paul had these wonderful words in Romans 5.1. Therefore, in being justified with, by faith, we have peace with God. Isn't that a great term? You thought that was just a Billy Graham title that he pulled that out of nowhere. No, that's where he got it from. Peace with God. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's great. So instead of falling into the hands of the living God, God says in Isaiah 41, 13, to the Jewish people, he says, for I, the Lord thy God, will hold thy hand. He said, I'll hold thy right hand, saying unto thee, fear not, I will help thee. 
Isaiah 41, 13. I, the Lord thy God, will hold thy hand. That's a wonderful part about the Lord Jesus Christ because he's saying, I'll hold, I'll hold your hand. See, here's my hand. Here's God's hand. Okay, I'll hold your hand. And you may be holding my hand too, but your hand may go like that. But I'll not stop holding your hand. Even when you don't hold my hand, I'll hold your hand. That's what God's saying. And, and, with, and that's what he meant when he said, and I give them eternal life in John 10, 28, 29, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. He's got them there. My father which gave them me is greater than all. No man is able to pluck them out of my father's hand. He's got them too. What's it mean? His grip is tighter than our grip. Then the next thing they became aware of is they became aware of their stupidness. Remember we talked about that last week? They heard the voice of the Lord walking in the garden, cool of the day, and Adam and his, and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord amongst the trees of the garden. I mean, here's two people who know that God is all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's all-seeing. He created the trees. He even created the fig leaves that they sewed together. And what could be more stupid for these two people to think that the trees are going to hide them from God? I mean, it's really something if you think about that. But that's what sin does. makes it stupid. So now we come, all right, so that's, that's the dark side of this chapter. Now it changes when you get to verse 8 and verse 9. Because just look at those two verses, Genesis 3, 8 and 9, and take out Adam out of there and just look at God. And, how you, and what do you see? Verse 8, the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. So the, and when they said, by the way, they were afraid, they said they were afraid because of the presence of God. That means that God was, was looking to be with them, to dwell with them. That's wonderful. Anyway, the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And now we forget about what Adam did to say. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, where art thou? Now note carefully those words in verse 8. The Lord God walking in the garden. That's important. Think about what that meant. God knew that Adam and Eve had sinned before he went into the garden. Do you believe that? He, he knew that, right. That was on his radar screen. And he could have, God could have just snuffed them out, just like that. Before the, he didn't have to, he could have just said, we're done, and you're done. And he could have turned them into a pile of ash, just like that. It could have been just like the dust to the dust. He could have done that, but he didn't. And these words, the Lord God walking in the garden after they sinned, it teaches us something about God. You know what that is? He didn't want to destroy them. He didn't want to destroy them. You kind of look like you don't really believe that. Do you believe that? Do you think that God didn't want to destroy them? He loved them. And those words, God walking in the garden, after man had sinned, shows the approach of God, the approach of grace. See, God didn't send a cherubim to go talk to Adam. He didn't send a seraphim. He didn't send an angel. But he went himself. It was very personal because God had this personal friendship with them. And so he goes himself into the garden. That was not just God 
who was there, that God was very specific. You know, I remember told, I may have told you this, but I remember getting on a plane one time and sitting next to this gigantic, it was so big, African-American man. And so I started out the conversation by saying something like, praise the Lord, I don't remember, something like that, you know. And this man had a voice like James Earl Jones, okay? (laughs) So when I said, praise the Lord, this giant of a man leans over me and in this booming voice says to me, and who might that Lord be? Just like that, you know. And uh, I was petrified, you know. I thought, <laughs> I felt like the size of a mouse or something. I, and I looked up and I said, the Lord Jesus Christ, you know, like that. And he says, all right now, you know, just like James Earl Jones would say. Now, that's very important. It was very important what he was asking. Because when you say Lord, or you say God, or praise the Lord, people ask, who are you talking about? Who are you talking about? We can ask that in this text. It says, the text says, the Lord God walked in the garden. And we could say, and who might that Lord be? You know, you could do that. And that was the Lord Jesus Christ himself who walked in the garden. That was the same Lord Jesus Christ who appeared to Abraham in Genesis 18 in the plains of Mamre when he was sitting in his tent, remember? That was the same Lord Jesus Christ who wrestled all night with Jacob in Genesis 32, and having won the wrestling match, he changed his name to Israel. That was the same Lord Jesus Christ who Moses and the 70 elders went up onto Mount Sinai, and it says they saw God. That's who they saw in Exodus 24. And that was the same Lord Jesus Christ in Judges 13 who Manoah and his wife both saw And they said, and he was worried he was going to die. And his wife says, well, he would have killed you by now. Don't worry about it. And that was the same Lord Jesus Christ that Isaiah the prophet saw in Isaiah chapter 6 when he saw his train filling the temple. Holy, holy, holy. And that was the same Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the wonderful thought that was born in a manger in Bethlehem. And the same Lord Jesus Christ that hung on a cross as the righteous servant justifying many dying for our sins, and the same Lord Jesus Christ before whom every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess he's Lord. So here we are in Genesis 3, and we see him approaching Adam and Eve after they sinned, and that picture is, is, is like a Kodak moment right there. So you see him, he's approaching Adam and Eve, and, he's, and, he, and it's exactly as John describes him in John 1.14. You see, when he approaches, you see the glory. The glory what? The glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Grace and truth. And they're going to have to come smell the coffee, so there's going to be the truth. But there's grace. There's grace here. And this is what's coming out of his mouth, grace and truth. But the big point of this, and to remember, is that he came personally. He came personally to Adam and Eve. And he would be the same person to come and die for every person, personally, on that cross. And so it says there, and then note in verse 9, the Lord God called unto Adam. Those are important words. God called to him, and then it says, he called unto Adam and said unto him. Because, you see, again, it's it's the personal address. It's God saying, Adam, and he's talking now, right? 
He's talking to him. And this is so wonderful. God's, Adam could sit there and say, this is so wonderful. God is speaking to me. I mean, after all, what I did to him, he's calling to me. He's speaking to me, right? And he knows everything I did, even though he can't see me behind this tree right now. <laughs> but he knows everything I did. Remember the definition of a best friend? You remember it? A best friend is the person who knows the worst about you and loves you just the same. That's the definition of a best friend. That's God. He knows the worst about Adam right now, and he loves him just the same. That's it, and he goes there. And he says to them, he he says to them these words, he says, the Lord God called unto Adam and said, where art thou? You know what that is? That's like a plea. That's a plea from God. You know, there's a professor at a Bible seminary, and he was looking to turn his students, he wanted to, to make them into evangelists. You know, not just understand what the Bible says and all the verses and doctrines, but he wanted to make them evangelists. And he knew that an evangelist, the key characteristic of evangelist, is his heart, the heart of the evangelist. And so he wanted to teach his kids, I mean his students, about the heart of God toward the lost. So he took this, this verse here, And what he did is he asked them one by one to stand up and recite the verse, the one we're looking at now. And as he did that, he wondered, as he listened to it, he's a very wise old man, sat there and he listened, and by the way they recited the verse, he was perceiving what they thought about the heart of God or what they understood to be the heart of God for the lost. So that's what happened. And so the different ones got up, one right after the other, and one got up, Read it, second one got up, read it, third one got up, read it, and those three words he listened to, where art thou? So as he, and he noticed, he could see some of the students stood up, and when they read it, it was like, uh, where art thou? Like an irritation in their voice, like a firmness. And others were, where art thou? Like a snappiness in their voice, like that, judgment, severity calling on the carpet. Or some, some of the students just say, where art thou? Like uh, indifference, you know, about where they are. And, and the professor just sat, and he realized that he was putting these students into different categories by how they perceived the love of God was for the lost. And then there was one young student that rose to his feet, and he was in the back of the classroom, and he kind of broke rank with all the other students. And when he got up, he read it like this, where are and he had like a sob in his voice and there was deep passion and feeling in his voice when he read it. You know what the old professor did? He rose to his feet, he pointed at that fella and he said, young man, God bless you. You will make a great evangelist. Because he had the heart of God. He had the heart of God. He knew that this wasn't those other ways that when God called out there, it was filled with passion. It was filled with compassion for uh, there's the compassion of God, and he reflected it. And for anyone who's lost, it doesn't matter the place, but God calls out with that passion, with that compassion in his voice. And so he's asking, Adam, Adam, how's it going for you? Is it well with your soul, Adam? Tom, today you talked about how sin makes a person afraid. We saw that fear in Genesis chapter 3 when we looked at Adam. Now, 
we all become afraid. So what is the answer to fear? Well, that's a very good question because it's true that before Adam sinned, there's really no record of and there's no reason for him to have been afraid. And the fact of the matter was he wasn't afraid. But after he had so treacherously treated God, after he, with such an aggression, was so offensive to God, so so stood up in the face of God, called this bluff and made this affront right to his face. After he did this, then we read Adam was afraid because that's what happens. And sin makes us afraid. Sin makes us afraid of, of our loving Heavenly Father. Sin makes us afraid of our God of our creation. But we know that sin brings fear But we are afraid, and we do face fears, and the question really becomes, what is the answer to the question about what is the answer to our fears? There's a great verse, and it's found in 2 Timothy 1.7, and it reads like this, For God hath not given us the spirit of fear but of power and of love and of a sound mind. So what this verse is really talking about is it's talking about what has God given us. Now, God has given us many wonderful things. We know the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. All good gifts come down from heaven, from the Father of lights. We know that there are many, many gifts of God, wonderful gifts of God that he gives to us. So this is a verse that tells us what God has not given to us, and this This says that among all the wonderful things that God has given to us, and we could name them like blessings one by one, there's one which is not there, and that is the spirit of fear. When there is this overwhelming cloud that seems to engulf us, that seems to make us afraid on every side, that if I open the door and the lights aren't on, what could there be on the other side? That is the spirit of fear. That's not a specific fear. It's the spirit of fear. And God has not given us the spirit of fear. And this is very important for us to realize because when we look at Ephesians 6 at the armor of God and we're told to take on the armor of God and we're told to among the some of the items in Ephesians 6 to take to us is the is the shield of faith where wish, wherewith we will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the devil. Well, many of those fiery darts of the devil are fears. Fears of the unknown. Fears what's going to happen tomorrow. Fears for my finances. Fears for my family. Fears for my spouse. Fears for my safety. Fears for blah, blah, blah. It goes on and on. All of those are fiery darts of the devil that he hurls at us in a spirit of fear. And what's so important to realize is that that's not of God. And it's important for us to take our stand according to this verse and and to say, that spirit is not of God. I reject that spirit because I am a child of God. And that is not coming from God. And so therefore we take our stand. And instead, God says that what he gives, instead of the spirit of fear, he gives us power or authority. 
He gives us authority. How do we have authority? When we look at the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, it says he taught them not as the scribes, but he taught them as one having authority because he had authority. And God gives to us authority. God gave to Noah authority to preach righteousness to a, to a generation that was going right on down the middle of the road to hell. God gives us authority. And then it says God gives us love. He gives us love. He gives us a compassion in our hearts. He gives us a care for other people. He gives us a, a, a desire to do, want to do good. And then he says, of a sound mind. You know, really a spirit of fear is almost borders on insanity. It's the opposite of a sound mind. And God gives us a sound mind. And you cannot have a more sound mind than to have a mind that is thinking in the scriptures, that is that is speculating according to the scriptures, that is per, that that is figuring things out according to the scriptures, because the scriptures are the Lord Jesus Christ. And just like the hymn says, on Christ the solid rock I stand. And when our minds are saturated with the word of God, with scripture, we have a sound mind. Our mind is standing on Christ the solid ground. Amen. And today when you talked about Adam, I was thinking about how the God of grace approached him, even though he was sinful. And really, it was the approach of grace as it came to Adam. Now, for our listeners out there, how does this happen in our lives today? You know, it's a really good term, the approach of grace. Because when we look and we stand back and look at Adam there in the garden there and God coming to him, we can say, oh, yes, there's Adam. He's running away. And here comes God. He's coming to him. But really, when you look at it, you can say, Adam, get ready because grace is about to approach you. And when God came, the God of all grace came to Adam, it was the approach of grace. That title, The Approach of Grace, can be something for our lives. And we can look back on our lives and we can see, oh, yes, that was the approach of grace in my life. For example, we, when before we were saved, when we were in darkness, far from God, we were not a friend of God, a Christian came. A Christian came to us because God sent him. And God sent that Christian to bring us the gospel. That was the approach of grace. And there's where it says in Acts 13, 26, men and brethren, children of the stock of Abraham, and whosoever among you feareth God, to you is this word of salvation sent. When the word of salvation came to us, it was because it was sent. And when that Christian brought us that word of salvation, that was the approach of grace. When, for example, a teacher or a preacher of the Bible, we hear them and they help us to understand the Bible. What's really happened there is that God has sent that teacher or that preacher of the Bible to us. That was the approach of grace, the approach of the grace of God to help us understand his truths through that teacher or that preacher. That's what it says in Romans 10, 14 through 15. How, shall, how then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of of good things. You know what that means? Those people who have the beautiful feet, who are preaching the gospel, who are bringing glad tidings of, of good things, they were sent. 
And so when a teacher or a preacher of the Bible helps you understand, realize God sent that teacher or that preacher, that was the approach of grace. And then when you're reading the Bible and all of a sudden a verse just comes alive and God gives you that verse and you know that God has given you that verse, that's the approach of grace. Romans 14, 26 says, the comforter who is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name. He shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. See, the Holy Ghost is sent. And when we understand a verse and when a verse comes alive and God gives it to us just in the nick of time, that's the approach of grace. When we're sick, when we're discouraged, when we need help, when we need physical uh, sustenance or, or provision, God sends a person to pray for us. God sends a person to comfort us. God sends a person to minister to our needs. Those are all God sending and that's the approach of grace. Just as it says in Romans 15, 32, Paul said, that I may come unto you with joy by the will of God and may be refreshed by you, but with you be refreshed. Those are approaches of grace that God sends to us and we thank him for every approach of grace in our lives. Thank you for joining us today. Would you like to receive a daily devotional verse from Tom Cantor? Just find Tom Cantor and Israel Restoration Ministries on Facebook, and you'll receive one there every day on your Facebook account. Would you like to contact Tom Cantor? You can do so by sending an email to tomcantor at friendshipwithgod.org. You can also call us at 1-800-247-3051, and we can get Tom Cantor teaching materials or Israel Restoration Ministries outreach and evangelism materials into your hands so that you can reach lost people, especially God's lost nation of Jewish people here in America. Call us today at 1-800-247-3051. Thanks for listening and join us tomorrow.